So I want to give you a little bit of a background, if, especially if you haven't been here for the last couple weeks or, you, or you're new or, or uh, maybe you've never read Habakkuk before. Um, chapter 1, the prophet Habakkuk is looking around at Judah. Now this is right before the Babylonian captivity of Judah, of Jerusalem. And, and so he's looking around and he's seeing all this wickedness because Judah at that point had steeped into the idolatry of all the lands around them, uh, the nations around them, excuse me, and, and uh, they had just turned their hearts uh, away from the Lord God. And so Habakkuk's looking around in his community, and it's probably something that you and I would do. I mean, I, you turn on the news, or I, think, I don't know that our community here, it's, you know, we're kind of, it seems like we're kind of somewhat sheltered here, a little bit of a bubble here. But doesn't you don't have to go too far. You can go 75 miles north into the heart of Minneapolis, and you know there's all that destruction from the George Floyd you know protests a couple years ago. And anyways, Habakkuk was looking around and and he's looking at all the evil, and he's like, Lord, why aren't you doing anything about it? He says, How long will I cry out to you? And and basically saying, You you don't hear. You're not doing anything. Where are you, Lord, in all this? Well, the Lord answers Habakkuk. And he says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded because I'm going to do a work in your days. And he basically says, you wouldn't even have believed it if I had told you beforehand. And then he tells Habakkuk that he's raising up these fierce and terrible people known as the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians, and that they're going to conquer and devour lands and kingdoms. And so that's the Lord's answer to Habakkuk. So where are you, Lord? Why aren't you doing anything? He says, well, I'm raising up these people, these terrible people, by the way, and they're going to they're gonna destroy everywhere they go. They're going to plunder. They're going to steal. They're going to be violent. They're going to murder. And that doesn't sit too well with Habakkuk. Habakkuk's like, Lord, you're a holy God. These are your people. Why would you pick people that are even worse than your people to come and be your instrument of judgment? It's like the cure is worse than the cancer. It's like, it's like you're, 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 Lord, what are you doing? Well, in chapter 2, in humility, it begins with verse 1, Habakkuk says he's basically, he's going to watch and wait for an answer from the Lord. And I love this. He says, and, and I'm going to know what, what, I'm going to think about what I'm going to say when I am corrected. Because at that point, Habakkuk realizes, man, I must not, I must not have the full understanding of what's going on. And so the Lord answers in chapter 2, and we talked about that last week, and he says basically in due time, he is going to judge the Chaldeans as well for their wickedness. And then he kind of details their wickedness. They have pride and selfish ambition. They plunder every nation that they go through. They steal, they ransack basically. They're violent and they murder people. They exploit others and they're idolaters. They worship futile idols. And at the end of chapter 2 it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So this is what leads up to chapter 3. And when we get to chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's response. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, Shigianoth. It's probably pronounced differently. But nobody really knows what that word is. The best that we can come up with is it's a form of poetry. And so chapter 3 starts with a prayer, and it ends with a hymn 
of praise. And so verse 2, it says, O Lord, this is Habakkuk speaking, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He says, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Remember earlier, I just mentioned that Habakkuk said he's going to stand his watch. He's going to set himself on the rampart and watch to see what the Lord will say to him and what he'll answer when he is corrected. And now that the Lord has told him all these things, Habakkuk has some realizations. First of all, he realizes that the Lord is aware of what's going on. God hasn't, God's not aloof. He sees what's happening. And in his wisdom, he's using the Chaldeans to judge his people, Israel. And you know the interesting thing is, in this whole conversation, God never says, well, this is why I'm using the Chaldeans. He never says. God never gives his answer why. He says, this is what I'm doing. And basically, back in, I think it was chapter 2, he says, basically, and this is where he had that famous verse, but the just shall live by faith. It's, the Lord's telling Habakkuk, you're going to have to just live by faith. You know, sometimes we go through life and we look at things and it's like, I don't know what you're doing, Lord. And the Lord's response, he's not going to always tell you why he does things. There's a lot of questions I have that have happened in my life. It's like, Lord, why did you do this? And even to this day, I don't know why. But I have to trust the Lord's faithful and he's loving and he's good. And so I have to walk by faith and you do too. But the Lord tells Habakkuk that he is going to judge the Chaldeans for their wickedness also. And Habakkuk's just going to have to walk in faith and trust him. So Habakkuk here starts out and now, you know, he's standing there protesting or praying or crying out. Now he's, he's, he's humbled basically. And he's quiet. He's silenced before the Lord. He's not the only one in the Bible that had questions for the Lord and ended up getting silenced. You know, the Lord responds, he just stops in silence. Job's a very good example. Job, you know, if you read, if you, in fact, if you start out with the book of Job, God is actually bragging about Job before Satan. It's a weird, it's, it's bizarre when you read chapter one of Job. But God's basically saying, hey, Satan, check out my servant Job. Man, he loves me. I'm paraphrasing quite heavily. And then, and then the devil says, well, yeah, you, because you put a hedge about him. Man, take all that stuff away. We'll see if he loves you or not. And God says, okay, just don't touch him. Well, that changes. Later on, Job ends up with boil, painful boils. But everything is stripped away from Job. And then Job's like, it, it, you know, his friends come. At first, they're quiet for like 10 days or so, which is the best. That's the best time. <laughs> they didn't say anything. Later on, they start opening up their mouth. And man, I tell you, they just start, man, Job, you must have done something wrong. God wouldn't do that to a sinner. We're to be prosperous and healthy, you know. And God's, God doesn't do that to wicked or to righteous people. There must be some sin in you. And so Job's listening to all this. And finally, Job's asking God, Lord, why are you doing all this? By the way, God never tells Job why either. But finally, the Lord says, hey, who... Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? And he goes through all this, this stuff. Where were you? And in the end, Job says this. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I can't speak. That's the same way Habakkuk felt in chapter 3. There's another guy in the Bible, Asaph. If you ever read Psalm 73, it's very par it's, there's a lot of parallels to chapter 3, or actually to the book of Habakkuk, I should say. 
Asaph's looking around and says, why do the wicked prosper? And, and he lists all these things. And, he, and basically Asaph's like, you know, what's the use in serving the Lord God? I mean, there's no difference between the wicked and the righteous and stuff. But then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. And then a few verses later, he says, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. There's another guy too, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember his pride and he's like, you know, look at all the kingdoms that, you know, this is all the work of my hands. And at that point, the Lord God, for I don't know how many years, he, he ended up just like an animal walking around eating grass. And, and uh, basically it was like he was insane for a while until chapter 4, verse 34 of Daniel says, At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. He just looked up to the Lord and the Lord restored him. So Habakkuk's not the only person in the Bible that's been silenced before the Lord. So Habakkuk here is praying. And he says, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So they are going to go into captivity by the Babylonians. Habakkuk now is no longer questioning why. Now he's praying that the Lord would continue to do the work, his work, in the lives and the hearts of his people. Even during this time, this time that they're going to be in, in captivity. Like Psalm 138, I'm going to read it to you, verses 7 and 8. It says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Sometimes we go through some difficult things in our lives. Sometimes we drift from the Lord in the midst of the years. You know, think about it. When, when, when you gave your heart to the Lord, and maybe, maybe, maybe you, were, uh, you, know, you, never, you were an unbeliever and then someone witnessed to you and you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and there was this great transformation in your life. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home and so you always had the Bible. You know, you were always, you went, maybe you had to go to church. That was my story. I always had to go to church and stuff. You were either sick or dead. And you, otherwise, and you're sick. I mean, you had to really be sick. I mean, it's like, you know, you're not like, oh, I don't feel like going. <laughs> Tough. You go. I thank the Lord for that, for my parents' strictness then, because it's kind of developed a, just a, you know, an, an ethic in me for those things. But anyways, at some point, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but at some point, he said, you know, the faith that I've been raised up in or the faith that I see in my parents, it's my faith now. And at, and at some point, you yourself give your heart to Jesus Christ. And so if you think back to that time, the early time, think about what it was like. I remember for me, I was so excited about my faith, sharing it with people, excited to be in Bible studies, reading God's word. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, after time, things kind of drift. Or, or maybe, maybe you go through a trial or, or, or just you start drifting. And now you're in the midst of the years. What a wonderful prayer to say. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Then he says this. In wrath, remember mercy. So even in, your, in the midst of your work, Lord, revive the hearts of your people. And even in the midst of your judgment, remember mercy. 
You know what I really appreciate about this? It's just a simple prayer. It's a simple prayer. In wrath, remember mercy. You know, sometimes I think we get too wordy in our prayers. Have you ever been in a prayer group or prayer meeting or praying with somebody and someone, you know, they're praying and and it's like they're like, Lord, pray for this person. They just lost their job and they had this going on and this going on. It's like, my mind wanders when I hear that. I'm like, I think God already knows that. (laughs) You don't have to inform him. He already knows. Just pray for the need, you know. And and, uh, I don't know. That's just my own quirk, I guess. But we had, uh, when we started this church, it was basically an outreach from Calvary Chapel St. Paul in the very beginning. And there was a group that came down from St. Paul, and we would meet uh, for, my, for a while, a couple of weeks. We met at somebody's house, and then they moved away. And so it came to our house, and we were in schools. We were, we were all over the place. And uh, they would bring down a, a group of people, a guy that did worship and, and some of that Todd and stuff. And we would just gather. We were, Teresa and I were the host couple at that time. And... And there was a guy that used to come down, a real rough character that had just given his heart to the Lord. And when we would have prayer at the end of the Bible study, I was always blown away by his prayers. Because his prayers were like this. It was like, Lord, I need you. And that was it. Or, Lord, have mercy. And I thought, you know, it's so simple, and yet it's so profound. God knows what you're going through. And just to pour out your heart to him. So in wrath, remember mercy. And you know the thing is, even in God's wrath, he is merciful. I know that the women have gone through, in the last women's Bible study, going through the book of Revelation. And you know, you think about it, even during the great tribulation, and it's interesting, I was part of a conversation this week where someone said, hey, what's the purpose of the tribulation? Can you, can you dumb it down to just a few sentences? What, what's God's purpose in the great tribulation? And uh, I love this. It got boiled down to this. It says, when God wakes up the nation of Israel, he starts doing the work with the nation of Israel. When God shakes up a Christ-rejecting world, and before that, God takes up his bride, the church. I like that. He wakes up Israel, he shakes up the world, and he takes up his bride, the church. Well, even while he is shaking up the world, you know, you, you read the judgments, the bold judgments, and all those things that are going on during, those, the, during the Great Tribulation, God sends two witnesses to share the gospel with those in Jerusalem. And then even this, in Revelation 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So in the midst of God's judgment, in the midst of his wrath, there's an angel flying around, literally, during the Great Tribulation, sharing the everlasting gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In God's wrath, he's still merciful. In fact, if you look at all the different judgments that take place during the Great Tribulation, there's mercy in almost every one of them that you read. You go, wait, what what about the destruction of this? There's there's mercy in there. Because if you think about it, there's one of the destructions that says, then a third of the trees were burned up. Another one, a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed, etc. There's always these thirds, and you go, well, why is there thirds? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not that smart. But I do know that means two-thirds are not destroyed. The two-thirds are spared. 
Even in God's wrath, we serve a merciful God. Even when he chastens you and I, he's merciful. Because he's not doing it to destroy you. He chastens you and I because he loves us. And he wants to form that character in us. He wants, he's not out to destroy us. We, listen, guys, we serve a merciful God. And so, man, I would encourage you, man, just pray, Lord, Lord, be merciful in this situation. I've been finding myself praying that a lot more lately. And so Habakkuk's got this simple prayer, very beginning of chapter 3. And now verses 3 through 15, it's basically a psalm of praise and worship. He's praising God for what he has done and what he will do. And I'm going to just read through those verses. Chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Peren, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows, Selah. You divided the river, excuse me, you divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the waters passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went. At the glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying... the head of the villages of his villages they came out like a whirlwind to scatter me their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret you walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters interesting psalm in the beginning of verse 3 there god came from teman the holy one from mount peren selah now teman was a city in the cap, it was a city. Actually, it was the capital of a, of the province of uh, Idu. Excuse me. It was the capital of a province in Idumea, which is known as uh, Edom, the land of Edom, and that would have been to the south of the land of Canaan. And Mount Paran was in that region. It was to the south and east of Jerusalem. Paran was a city. Um, by that name, there's also, if you read in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness of Paran, and then there's Mount Paran. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, it records Moses' blessings. You know, he's, he led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. He's not going to be able to go into the promised land because of what happened, what he did. But he's blessing the children of Israel before they go in. And in verse 2 of chapter 33, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. 
And so then back to Habakkuk chapter 3, the second part of verse 3, His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, and He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Now many people believe that verse in verse 3, and verse 4, God is recall, or excuse me, Habakkuk is recalling God coming down on Mount Sinai and revealing himself to the children of Israel there. And if you recall that, when that occurred, the children of Israel, they were frightened. They trembled at the glory of the Lord on the mountain. And then you recall that they said, they basically said, Moses, you listen to God and tell us what he says. We're, we don't want to hear what he says because it was so, it was so awe-inspiring. It was so fearful and, and glorious and, and awesome. And then Moses went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And when he came down, man, he had, that, he had that glow, right? He had that reflection from being in the presence of the Lord. So many people believe that this is what Habakkuk is referring to in verses 3 and 4. Habakkuk is reminded of the, oh, I like what somebody called it, the old salvation road. What that is basically is God's past deliverance of the children of Israel. So Moses, is, or excuse me, Habakkuk is recalling this. And you'll notice a Selah, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either, in verse 3, if you go through the Psalms, the book of Psalms, there's a lot, a lot of times you'll read that. You'll read Selah in the middle of, in the middle of a song. And uh, again, that's one of those things that's a little difficult to understand. What is it? Is it a musical interlude? Um, is, it, uh, is it a time when the symbols were to resonate, you know, in a crescendo at some kind of a point musically? Is it, is it a musical thing? Because these psalms were set to music. I like what J. Vernon McGee says, what he thinks it refers to, or, or the way to look at it anyways. He says that those words, Selah, remind him of the old railroad crossings. We don't see him like that anymore, but he said they always said, stop, look, and listen. Because whenever I read Selah, that's what I think. Stop, reflect, and meditate on what you just wrote. So Habakkuk's doing that in chapter 3 in different places. He's stopping, and he's reflecting, and he's meditating on what God, what he just said, what God had done. Verse 5, before him went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. This appears to be a reflection of the plagues of Egypt. Verse 7 appears to refer to how the children of Israel were feared by all the Canaanite nations when they heard what the Lord did to Egypt. Remember, you know, when they, when they went to, uh, they, were, they sent the spies into Jericho. And Rahab the harlot said, man, we've heard about you guys. <laughs> you know, they were all, everyone was afraid of the children of Israel because of what God had done through them to the Egyptians. In fact, later on, remember the story of Balak and Balaam? Balaam, uh, Balak basically hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel, and God wouldn't let him do it. Um, but that was, Balak was the king of the Midianites. They all feared the children of Israel. So verse 7 appears to be referring to that. Verse 8 appears to be referring to the parting of the Red Sea when the children of Israel crossed over, and also later the Jordan River when they went into Canaan itself. Verse 11, that appears to be referring to when God caused the sun to stand still during a battle for Joshua against the Amorites. That's in uh, Joshua chapter 10. 
verse 12 through 15 appear to be, and I keep saying appear because we don't really know, but appears to be describing victory after victory that the Lord gave the children of Israel as they conquered the land of Canaan. So what's Habakkuk doing? Habakkuk is recalling the old salvation road of the Lord in Israel's past. Lord, this is what you've done in the past. Now, what's interesting, there are other commentators that look at that same, those same verses, and they don't say, well, this is referring to what God did in Israel's past. This is what God is doing in the future with the coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming. It's very interesting. They think that Habakkuk is prophesying about Christ's second coming. Beginning with verse 3, many people interpret Isaiah 63 to be a prophecy related to this verse. Isaiah 63 prophesies the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me just read it to you. 63 verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then the answer is, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And if you were to do a study on, on Isaiah 63, Basra, it's actually, the name means grape gathering. And so, you know, here is uh, Jesus, the prophecy, many people believe, of Jesus returning to Jerusalem at the end of the great tribulation to set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. And he's coming from the east, from present-day Jordan into Jerusalem. And we say, I don't know if I believe that. I'm, I'm, I don't know. That's kind of wild. You know what's interesting about that? There was a, a sultan of the Ottoman Empire. His name was Suleiman the Magnificent. And in 1540, uh, around 1540 and 441, he had the gates of Jer the east gate of Jerusalem enclosed by concrete because many of the Jewish people at that time believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to come into Jerusalem through the east gate. So this Muslim was like... He ain't coming in. So he, he concreted over the east gate. And then on top of that, they put a cemetery, a Muslim cemetery, between the eastern gate and the Mount of Olives because they figured a good Jew's not going to defile himself walking across a grave site. So evidently they believed that Jesus would come through the eastern gate. But that's neither here nor there at this point. But what I'm getting at is there's people that say that this prophecy is about a future event, not necessarily a past event. And in that respect, they say verse 5 could be referring to the bold judgments of the great tribulation. And the rest of the verses could be referring to the great events culminating during the, uh, during the, uh, the great tribulation. So when I started this, I said, it appears to be. And some people say this, and some people say, so... What is the answer? Is it recalling Israel's past, the old salvation road? Or is it prophesying the future? I think it could be both. And I think there's a good reason for that. For you and I in our walks with the Lord, it's so important to remember our old salvation road, the path that the Lord took us through, the difficulties that he delivered us from, You know, when the children of Israel went through the Jordan River, they're entering into the land of Canaan, and, and in different places, the Lord God would tell them, hey, set up some stones, stones of remembrance, so that you can go back, and when your children say, hey, what are those stones doing there?
say, well, hey, God delivered us in this way. And you could recall it. In fact, in Deuteronomy, throughout Deuteronomy, God is telling the children of Israel, hey, tell your children about this. Tell us to your children. Remember the things in the past and, re and, re and refer to it. Why? Because as you and I look back at God's past deliverances, it gives us hope and faith for what he's going to do in the future. So I think it's good to do both things. Look in the past, look at our, own, our old salvation road, and we each have a unique salvation road that the Lord took us on, different ways that the Lord's delivered us, because it gives us hope for our future deliverances. And so we get to verse 16. Habakkuk says this, When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. If you read back in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, he was crying out. In fact, one of the words, one of the Hebrew words, like he was emotionally, he was just like, he was just like you know, um, crying in a loud voice, emotionally pouring out to the Lord in the beginning of chapter 1. Maybe he's even standing there upright, you know, with his hands on his hips. Lord, why? You know, I look around here. Why, Lord? You know, that might have been his posture. But now, in chapter 3, verse 16, he's bent over. And he's shaking. He's barely able to audibly respond to the Lord. What changed? Well, the circumstances didn't change. The people around him are just as wicked as they were before. That didn't change. God's still sending the Chaldeans to punish the... To, to, well, they're going to conquer more lands than just Judah, but it's to punish Judah. That hasn't changed. What changed? Habakkuk changed. His whole perspective changed. You see, he understood God is at work in the world. And I think sometimes we need to remember that, especially in our day and age, when we look at all the junk that's going on around us, and we go, where is God in all this? God's aware of what's going on. He sees it. He's still at work in the world. God displayed his glory to Israel in the beginning of their history, as Habakkuk is, I think that's what he's referring to. He gave them the law. He made them his people. He went before them. He led them in victory. And yet they still rebelled against him over and over and over again. Throughout those 40 years of wandering, they kept grumbling, they kept complaining, they kept sinning against the Lord. And I think Habakkuk, as he's, as he's recalling these things, I think something's clicking with Habakkuk. I think he's realizing, whoa, we've been given so much and we're sinning against the Lord. They have a greater responsibility. They have a greater accountability when they sin because they are God's people. You know, when, it, when, it, when I, I mentioned that the ver, very first uh, week when we went through Habakkuk chapter 1, he's talking about all this wickedness. And we look around us and go, look at all the wickedness around us. But what's interesting about that is the wickedness of Judah, God's people. That's what he's complaining about. The wickedness, the rebellion, the idolatry of God's own people. I think Habakkuk's making a realization that their sin was greater than the Chaldeans. 
at first he's like, why would you send people that are more wicked than your people? But then he realizes, well, they've been given so much and they've rebelled against the Lord. Jesus said, for to whom, in Luke 12, for who, everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. I think, that's, I think there's a light bulb going off in, in Habakkuk's head. Now the Chaldeans would in time be judged for their sin also. And I think the other, the other click, in, you know, the other aha moment, I, I, people say the aha moment, is that I think Habakkuk's realizing when it comes to sin, God's not partial. He's impartial. He's not a respecter of persons. Let me ask you this. As soon as my notes come back, <laughs> I just clicked on. Do you need a change of perspective this morning? Instead of focusing on the problem with God, and I've done this, why God? How long, Lord, is you going to allow this to take on? How long am I going to be in this situation, God? And, and, and there's this, like, God's got to answer my problem. I, I've got a problem with you, God. Why aren't you doing this? Instead of focusing on the problem with God, start focusing on the person of God. Man, who he is. He's a holy God. He's a merciful God. He's all-powerful. And he's sovereign. And he loves you and I. Even while we are boneheads, <laughs> you know, numbskulls. He still loves us. So instead of focusing on the problem with God, focus on the person of God. Instead of focusing on the problem before you, focus on the old salvation path behind you. How has he been faithful in the past? What, you know, the, the thing that you went through in the past, has God delivered you through that? I mean, you're here this morning. Reflect back on what he has done and how he's been faithful to deliver you in past situations because God hasn't changed. He's still faithful. He's still merciful. He still loves us. And instead of pouting or protesting, pray. Man, go to the Lord. Instead of worrying, worship the Lord. I'm a worrier by nature. I've inherited that by my mom. I have the gift of worry. And so I have to work at not worrying. Some of you, I, you know, I was talking to someone, and he's going through all this stuff, and he's like, yeah, okay, God will do, you know, God will do it. I have to remind myself, eh, okay, God will do it. <laughs> because I have that gift of worry. And so what I've been doing is like, when, when that starts getting in, I tell you, man, my mind can go in all different kinds of places. I go, man, I just need to stop. I've got I to shut off those thoughts. I've got to just worship the Lord. And you know, as I do that, it's amazing how that my perspective changes. Remember when David, Ziklag, the city of Ziklag, you know, he, he, David and his mighty men, and, and they go out and doing some conquests, and they leave their kids and their wives and servants and everybody back in Ziklag and the Philistines, I think it was the Philistines, they go in there and they just, they destroy the city and they take the women and the children captive. And David's men are ticked at David. And they want to stone him, man. What kind of leader are you? And David, man, everybody's against David. That would be a bad day. Everybody's against you. <laughs> and what does David do? He comforted himself in the Lord. And that's what we need to do. 
Instead of worrying, worship the Lord. I think maybe I'm preaching to myself this morning. I don't know. Look at the fruit of Habakkuk's new perspective, beginning in verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will, walk, he will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with, string, with my stringed instruments. Now maybe you're reading that and you go, you know, I, I, oh, the fig tree, yeah, I, I, who cares? <laughs> you know, maybe you don't care about figs. I can look at the uh, apple or the pear tree. It's definitely got pear. If I looked out there and like there's no pears on the tree, I go, great, the parking lot's going to stay cleaner this year. You know, but, you know, it may not, maybe you're not too worried about fig trees blossoming, blossoming or a bad crop of olives or little to, uh, little to no head of livestock. You will start worrying when you go to the grocery store and there's no meat. <laughs> you know, a farmer would understand this perfectly well. So let me put it in terms that some of us city slickers could maybe, maybe we could relate to this better. Though the start stock market crashes, though the pension plan goes bankrupt, or like in my case, though you lose your job, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. There's a change in perspective there. You know, if you go through these chapters and you look at all the transitions, Habakkuk started out with tears. In Habakkuk 1 verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? That's how he started out. But now that his perspective's changed, he ends with verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. What a transformation. He starts out with perplexity. Verse 3 of chapter 1, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Verse 14, Why do you make men like fish of the sea? He's perplexed on what God is doing, and yet he ends with praise. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He starts out with despair. And he ends up in prayer. He started out in a valley. It was pretty dark and depressing where he was. But if you look at the end there, he ends up on a high mountain. Those mountain paths. His perspective has changed. So it's my prayer for us this morning. If, if you want to change your perspective, maybe you came in here and things are a bummer for you. Maybe there is a relationship issue or, or, or maybe a work issue or, or some other thing. Maybe it's a health issue. And you need a change in perspective. This, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. I'll have the worship team come on up and let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer.